Welcome to another episode of Fire and Water Records, the fan favorite music show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Ryan Daly, back for another installment of the beloved soundtrack selections, where my guest and I discuss some of our favorite songs that featured on movie soundtracks or prominently in films. My guest this time is the host of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, and he also hosts Fan Film Fridays over at the Longbox Crusade Network. That's like the weird cousin of the Longbox family that nobody talks about, but he still shows up at family gatherings and holidays. Please welcome Mr. Clinton Robison. What's up, man? <laughs> oh, thank you for for giving, giving what is probably the best synopsis of that show. Yeah, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, I'm good, Ryan. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, now, listeners, if you're tuning into this podcast, I assume that you not only like music, but you have a decent appreciation for movies, too. And if you like talky scripts about pop culture minutia, boy, have we got the episode for you. Clinton came to me with the idea three years ago. Wait, no, no, it was actually it was back in February. It just feels like three years ago. Uh, and your pitch was that you would choose songs that all appeared in Kevin Smith movies. And based on that, I decided that I would link all of my songs to a single filmmaker as well. That could be the theme for this episode. Uh, and I thought of a bunch. I considered Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Mann. I briefly considered Quentin Tarantino and then just as briefly dismissed him thinking that was just too obvious. Um, and I settled on Cameron Crowe, so I could talk about the movies Say Anything and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Almost Famous Again. But, spoilers, another guest who shall appear on a future episode wanted to talk about In Your Eyes from Say Anything. And I always like to defer to the guests, so I took In Your Eyes off of my list. And then it became really apparent that there is no point in basing all of your songs on Cameron Crowe if you don't talk about In Your Eyes. So I scrapped that and I went back to my list and I gave Tarantino another look. And I remembered how influential and important his movies were to me in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I realized I didn't just like the songs, but I actually had something to say about them and the movies. So... My selection of songs are all coming from Tarantino movies. But back to you, Clinton. You picked Kevin Smith. Why him? What was, why is he the organizing principle behind your selections? Well, it actually kind of comes from a dumb idea, really. <laughs> I started <laughs> off... That puts, that puts us right in the, in the right headspace to start off. <laughs> yes. It started off with, hey, if I could take one song from each movie in a franchise, what would it be? Because this is the kind of stuff I think about at work. <laughs> and it just kind of spiraled on into there. It's like, hey, wait, there's a lot of Kevin Smith movies. 
let's see, what would be a good song from this soundtrack, a good song from this soundtrack? Hey, we can kind of get this rolling here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, that kind of fell apart when it came time for this selection. But I mean, when did how and when did you first discover him? Oh, gosh. Kevin Smith, I probably discovered from the Mallrats ads in the back of comics back around what was it, 93? Uh, it would have been later than that. I think Mallrats came out in 95, so yeah. Okay, somewhere around there. But yeah, I had zero clue who these two slackers standing in front of the 3D picture were. I could never see the 3D picture, so you know, count me as part of that crowd. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm a teenager in the 90s. I like malls. Let's see what this is about. And that became a, a, a bit of a rabbit hole from there. Yeah. Yeah, I, it probably was around the same time. I think Mallrats had come out, but I didn't see it right away. And I did see Clerks at first on VHS. Uh, it was, I think my brother recommended it to me. I'm quite sure. Um, and it blew me away. I mean, just for being such a simple, like you know, black and white movie, looked like it cost six dollars to make that movie. I was like, <laughs> I could have done this. This is nothing. Um, but it just it blew me away. Just like the, what they were talking about, the dialogue, the tone, the feel, like the, how how stupid and pedestrian, but also familiar the conversations felt like. Um, and this was really, I, I mean, between these two filmmakers to come out, you know, with guns blazing in some cases, literally, uh, in the nineties, I mean, I liked movies and after, you know, Batman in 1989, uh, like I, I, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in movies. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to do stuff like that. But it was after I saw, you know, Pulp Fiction and, and Clerks and Mallrats and these movies, this is when it changed course for me. And I became much more interested in what went on behind the scenes and and the, the genesis and the storytelling um, it also helped that I wasn't a very good actor. So uh, this is what I focused more on writing and just, it, it started with the screenplays and the scripts of these guys and, and the way they commanded language to, uh, to not just talk about simple, stupid minutia, stuff that I was familiar with, comic books, superheroes, movies, food, weird things like that. Um, but it, it, all in service of kind of building a, a, the characterization for these things. That's what made me interested in writing and kind of changed my, and then based on my interest in this writing, I started to read a lot more screenplays, plays, novels, because I didn't like writing when I was a kid, or I didn't like reading when I was a kid. I, even when I was collecting comics, I was much more of a an art first type of comic book reader uh, and and these movies and these filmmakers and they, these writers changed that and made me much more interested in the language the words that were used so they they totally changed my life um, so yeah when it, like I, I mean this was a really fun episode to prepare for because I, like I, I will admit like I haven't gone back and watched a lot of Kevin Smith's movies in 15 years. Uh, you know, if that, and I like, I was obsessed with Kevin Smith and, and, and Quentin Tarantino, like the first, at least the first five movies in their, in their catalogs and everything for years in high school and college, you know, we're talking all the way up to like the mid two thousands. Um, but then they just kind of faded away. Like my interest, I kind of, I don't want to say I grew out of them, but in some cases maybe, um, and just changed directions. But going back to, to look at these, this was a total nostalgia trip and, and really, I had so much fun preparing for this one. So I, I hope we have some good things to say about this one. I hope that's not putting too much of a pedestal on this because this, this episode could easily crash. No pressure on you. I'm 
Oops, I'm I'm sorry. I, I kind of tuned you out. I was just picturing <laughs> you and Neil doing like a hardcore gritty reboot of Blues Brothers. <sighs> we could. <laughs> All right. What's the first song you got? Well, I really, really wanted to pick something from the Clerks soundtrack, but let's be honest here. You might as well just say early 90s and be done with it, because <laughs> I really, really, really wanted to include Berserker by Love Among Freaks, but <laughs> in all honesty, Silent Bob's cousin Olaf sings it about a million times better. That's a song that's better in concept than it actually is when you listen to it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. So instead, I kind of went with the idea of let's make a movie soundtrack. Let's go with the best opening from any of these movies. So from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, I included Jay's rap. Fuck, 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 mother, mother, fuck, mother, mother, fuck, fuck, mother, fuck, mother, fuck, noise, noise, noise. One, two, one, two, three, four, noise, 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 smoking weed, smoking weeds, doing coke, drinking beers, drinking beers, 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 rolling baddies, smoking blunts, who smokes the blunts, who smoke the blunts, rolling blunts and smoking. Uh, let me get a nickel back. Fifteen bucks, little man, put that shit in my hand. If that money doesn't show, then you owe me, owe me, oh. So basically, to set the scene, it's literally the opening of the movie. Jay and Silent Bob are dealing in front of the quick stop. It's catchy as hell, and it's a song that sums up pretty much everything you need to know about Jay and Silent Bob. If you somehow stumbled into this movie without ever having seen or heard of Jay and Silent Bob before, you get exactly what they're all about in this little ditty. <laughs> Besides that, you also get an excessive use of the word fuck, which is always fun, and it segues into a little riff from Jungle Love by Morris Day in the Time. <laughs> I, I was actually, I was, a part of me was heartbroken that that didn't make your list, too, that you didn't have Jungle Love, but... <laughs> well, I figured, you know... Anything from Purple Rain is kind of <laughs> a given. So, right, that, that'll come back. Yeah, we've we've got more, we've got opportunities to bring that back. The the weirdest thing was when I saw this on your list, the first thing on your list, I was like, really? He's gonna give an entire song slot to Jay's rap? What is that? Like thirty seconds? And I thought about it, and again, having not heard this or seen the movie since two thousand three, two thousand four, maybe. As soon as I saw those lines, I did the entire rap to myself. Like, I knew it verbatim, and I was like, oh my god, how do I still remember this? But that was genius, so I was like, this is the perfect way to, this is the perfect way to start, so kudos to you, this is, this is the right way to start. Um, and I could picture it too, and it's still, like, it cracks me up just picturing it when, when he, when he's, uh, smoking fatties, rolling blunts, and he does like the question, the rhetorical question, like, who smokes the blunts? We smoke the blunts. And, like, the, the interaction that he has with Silent Bob, the way they look at each other, and the way Silent Bob, like, looks up throwing his hands up like of course we did i, I can see the the hand gestures and the whole the way they mimic that and it's perfect <laughs> yeah. plus this is like one of those little niche pop culture earworms that has been parodied two or three different times and little things that you wouldn't expect it to be yeah you know as you said you, you hadn't heard it in 15 or so years and you still knew every word granted you know 90 percent of the words are fuck but <laughs> yeah it wasn't hard <laughs> <laughs> all right moving on then moving on all right then uh my first song comes from quentin tarantino's breakout 1992 movie reservoir dogs the song is stuck in the middle with you by steeler's wheel well i don't know why i came here tonight 
Song dates back to 1972. It was written by Jerry Rafferty for the band Steelers Wheel. Uh, Rafferty's singing style, apparently, I just read this. He was he was apparently meant to be kind of a parody of Bob Dylan's, uh, like the vocal style. And some people actually confused this with a Dylan song. I, I don't know how you could confuse this with a D- Bob Dylan song. I mean, it, their vocal stylings are similar, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever confuse the two. Um, but yeah, this is the the song played when Mr. Blonde has the tied up police officer and he slices him up with a knife and he cuts his ear off and then he goes out to his car to get a thing of gasoline and dumps it on him and he's going to burn this cop alive. It is a gruesome torture scene. It is one of the most memorable. I would argue it's one of the most memorable scenes on film from the 1990s. Um, I mean, because this has been referenced and parodied from The Simpsons. Like, I mean, imagine them doing a parody of this with uh, Itchy and Scratchy. Um, Quit but, stealing my notes, man. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just it's such a memorable song. And like for for a movie that opens with people talking about music and talking about songs. I mean, this did have a really good soundtrack. And and I could have picked a number of songs from this, from uh, Magic Carpet Ride to Lime in the Coconut, but it was this one i mean when i think of that movie i still think of this haunting torture scene and how i i wonder if this movie actually may have stunted michael madsen's career like i don't know where his career trajectory was before this but i don't think he got a lot of hero like roles after this maybe like the species movies um but i think it was pretty easy to look at him and say he's got to be a villain he's got to be a nasty character because this is what he was what do you think about the song your, like I said, your notes are pretty much a mirror of mine. It, this is definitely the most famous scene from this movie. You you can talk to people who have never seen this movie and then play this song, and they're going to be like, wait, is that the scene where the dude is like, blah, blah? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the song is great. I've, I mean, this is one of those songs that you grew up with because your parents listened to it in the car and you didn't mind. But um, yeah, I mean, it fits perfectly with the scene, even though – it's kind of that upbeat rhythm. It really kind of tells the tale of the cop because he's literally stuck in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. As for the, I, I do, I do like the music too. Just as a as a groove, as a melody. Like I found myself when I would be listening to this song to prep for this. I would find myself starting to do kind of Michael Madsen's like faux dance, like the kind of like steps that he had and like stepping backwards and everything like that. And it's, I found myself getting into this. It's like a fun song. Yeah. So it, it perfectly contrasts the, the gravity of the moment and the, the, what is happening on the scene, which is 
that both of the, these filmmakers are really, really good masters of, of using the music that perfectly undercuts the seriousness of what's going on, which I think you can probably speak to in the next song that you have. So <laughs> where do we go from here? Oh, that was a beautiful segue. Beautiful segue. <laughs> okay, so undercutting seriousness of moments is pretty much the whole undercurrent in dogma. So I kind of went with uh, Magic Moments by Perry Como. I'll never forget the moment we kissed the night of the hayride The way that we hugged to try to keep warm while taking the sleigh ride Magic moments, memories we've been sharing Magic moments, when two hearts are caring Time can't erase the memory of these So to set the scene, Jay and Silent Bob are sitting with Bethany in a diner just after saving her from a, an assault by the demon teens or whatever they're called. <laughs> but in traditional Jay and Silent Bob fashion, they're trying to score. <laughs> Which, you know, is the perfect time to ask a girl to sleep with you right after she's been assaulted outside her workplace. And, of course, you know, what sets the scene better than a beautiful romantic song like Magic Moments? Especially when you're talking about trying to get a girl to do anal. <laughs> I mean, this, honestly, this one's here for pure comedic timing. We all know this. Mm -hmm. The contrast between the sweet and innocent Perry Como song and the filth pouring out of Jay's mouth in a lackluster attempt to get laid. <laughs> uh, this, again, the, the setup for this is priceless because Bethany, played by Linda Fiorentino, has been warned that, you know, these two prophets will come into her life and, and save her and she's got to be on the lookout for them. And yeah, she's about to be attacked by these teenagers outside of her workplace, which is an abortion clinic. And Jane and Bob save her and she's ready, and it's just like his offhand mention of the word prophet or whatever strikes the, the note in her, so she's like, okay. So she takes them back, and it's like, even though they've already appeared because they, they saved her in that fight scene, this is sort of their introduction where you find out who these guys are and what they're all about, and it's just <laughs> them in the diner, and you hear this music, and you see their feet shaking in, in anticipation how excited they are to be sitting with this beautiful professional woman that they think they're going to be able to score with because because they saved her. And you're right. Like the, the sweetness of this, this old crooner, 1957 Perry Como song. It's so wonderful. And I, I mean, this song was really popular for a good, for a, 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 this span of time, because I heard this in dogma, which came out in 1999. This was also in fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the movie version with Johnny Depp and Benito del Toro, which came out in 98. And it was also in the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, which also came out in 1998. So I heard this like three different ways that, you know, all like a lot of them just kind of like in these set up little scenes in this short period of time. But like this one, when I heard it again, I was like, I, I do like the, the chef's kiss 
kiss the mwah. This was like a perfect button for this type of moment. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so good. So, so funny the way they use this. So this was, and this was another one. I, I started, I, I think I briefly mentioned this or was going to mention it on a previous episode when I was talking to Rick Heineken. Uh, this, when I saw this movie in the theater, I saw it on kind of like a group date. It was me and a couple of my friends and some of our non-romantic girlfriends. Uh, but I, it was kind of my first pre-date with a girl who would become my serious girlfriend my senior year. Uh, and she was from a pretty devout Catholic background, went to a Catholic <laughs> school from like kindergarten <laughs> up until eighth grade and then just transitioned to like high school. So she had all these things. So for her, kind of like, you know, she, we were just kind of getting to know each other and doing a little bit of flirtation. And then for this to be our sort of first date where we sat next to each other and the subject matter of dogma where they're, you know, talking openly about all these things. And she is like, what am I getting into? And I'm laughing my ass off at all of these things. It was, <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, it was quite an auspicious outing for, uh, for a romance that, uh, you know, what surprised everybody that we, we didn't work out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shocker. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, all right, moving on then to my next song. Uh, moving up in the chronological order, we are going to the 1994 film Pulp Fiction, a movie that had a ton of great songs, but for me, the one that always stood out was Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. Billy Ray was a preacher's son, and when his daddy would visit, he'd come along. When they gather round and started talking, that's when Billy would take me walking. Out through the backyard we go walking. Then he look into my eyes. Lord knows to my surprise, the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. You see what he was. This is a 1972 song that was written for Aretha Franklin, but after she recorded it, her manager passed on the song, just didn't think it was it really fit with the album that they were cutting. So he gave it to Dusty Springfield instead. And the song plays when John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, he comes to pick up Uma Thurman, and he comes to her house, and she's spying on him through the security camera. And it feels sort of like an inversion of the trope where, you know, the beautiful woman walks in and everything slows down and the guys are ogling the girl. Actually, the the thing that I just thought of was in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back when What's-Her-Name walks in and they play the Bon Jovi song Bad Medicine. <laughs> it's It's like an inversion of that where this time it's the girl checking out the guy and kind of taking his measure uh, when he walks in. And... It's great because she's spying on She's talking to him through the intercom, and he doesn't know how to interact with that, partly because he's on heroin, and she does a bump of coke in the scene, so they're all on drugs and all that. And throughout the scene, you hear the song, Son of a Preacher Man, which is brilliant because there's it's about this you know, inappropriate relationship, this forbidden romance between this girl, you know, becoming the lover of this boy that, uh, that they, they shouldn't be together. And 
we're seeing like this is sort of a pre-meeting, the predestined meeting of these two characters who we have been told in advance that she might have been cheating on her husband with some other guy and her husband asked him to take her out. So are we setting up that these two are going to get together? And like, is this like, is this just fulfilling a prophecy that is doomed to, to explode in their faces and get them both killed? And it's perfect that their introduction is the song Son of a Preacher Man. I just love this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great song. I love this scene, except for the uh, focus on feet, but that's Tarantino's <laughs> thing, not mine. That's that's not going to go away. <laughs> no. Uh, supposedly, Tarantino has said that he wouldn't have even filmed this scene if he couldn't have used the song. Mm-hmm. He would have just skipped straight to them going to the, to the diner. So this scene actually adds a lot. It, it, it looks like it's nothing, but yeah, the, like you said, it, it adds a lot to the relationship between Vincent and Mia, and you don't even realize it until after you've already watched pretty much everything else with them. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to the next one. What is your next song? Oh, that's me. Okay, so instead of going in chronological order like a classy person, I'm going to jump back to Mallrats with Build Me Up Buttercup by the Goops. Basically, for anybody who doesn't know Mallrats, T.S. and Brody have both gotten dumped, and Brody is just constantly like, nah, nah, nah. I'm not getting back with Renee. Forget it. It's, it's over. It's done. No big deal. But you know, the moment he thinks he can have some makeup sex, he goes for it in an elevator where Renee has completely challenged his libido, which... I mean, it works pretty well, but her, her note said it better. <laughs> but as far as the song itself, I really like this upbeat rock cover. It, it's, I mean, it's not like the song itself was really downbeat below, but this this actually really works. Uh, for some reason, you know, normally I'm not like a big, hey, you know, the cover's better, but this really works with me. Like most of the songs on this list, I chose it for the placement within the movie. The song fits the erratic energy involved in the admittedly bland sex scene. And it contrasts nicely with the elevator music being heard by the people waiting outside the elevator. (laughs) Plus, I mean, the lyrics pretty much sum up all of Renee and Brody's relationship prior to the breakup. You know, why do you build me a buttercup? Don't break my heart. Yeah, this was, I remember this song coming out and I, I, 
I picked it up too. Like I, I really as soon as as soon as I heard it in the movie, I was like, oh wow, this is a cool punk rock version of the song. Um, and this felt like it was part of a wave of these type of things. Like a couple of bands that I liked had like these sort of punk rock, harder edged covers of kind of classic like '60s or '70s songs. Like I know the Ataris felt like like they they had some of these. Um, and yeah, the original version by the Foundations was uh, was a classic. I love that version. Uh, I think this this is a good uh, a good high energy fun cover i don't like it as much as the original however there's a part at the very end of this song like after it seems like it's fading out when when they come back for one more chorus uh and the lead singer whose name is eleanor whitledge or whitledge she kind of like belts out the last chorus and her voice gets a little bit scratchier and and ragged and I really like the sound and the edge for that last chorus. And I was like, I wish, I wish that was the sound throughout the whole song. Like she was really belting it out in this kind of manic energy. Cause I think that would kind of fit just a little bit better. I think that might just put the song over the edge. I, I, I like it. I like it. I don't like it as much as the original, but the energy in that last verse, I, I really dig it. And I think that could have been it. That could have been the tipping point. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of see it more as like a a build up from you know just no please please and you know just to eventually like no you don't understand don't build <laughs> me up just to break my heart you know she's yelling at him like at this point or her or whoever I'm sorry I don't mean to right <laughs> yeah all right then the next one on the list from the 1997 movie Jackie Brown this is well what other song could it be. Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics. I gave my heart and soul to you, girl. Didn't I do it, baby? Didn't I do it, baby? Gave you a love you never knew, girl. Didn't I do All right, the song originally recorded in 1969. Um, I will cop to the fact that the first time I heard this song was a version by the New Kids on the Block in the in the I wondered late if eight. you were going to bring that up. Uh, yes, I was. It was on their first album, uh, which I heard in the early uh, late 80s. Sorry, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that's their their version is it is what it is. It's fine for for theirs. Um, but I absolutely adore this song, and this was the first time I heard this version uh, was in this movie. And without hyperbole, this is possibly my favorite use of any song in a movie 
because it is so central to Max and Jackie's love story. Uh, and I want to shout out, if you haven't listened to it, folks, check out the Film and Water podcast episode. Rob Kelly and David Ace Gutierrez talked about Jackie Brown. Um, and they did a great job on it. It really made me jealous because for the longest time, I thought I was the only person who liked this movie. Uh, it, it felt like, I mean, after after the smash success of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and Tarantino had also written Natural Born Killers and True Romance, like his star was like, he was so popular, like he could do anything. And he cover he, he does a, a an adaptation of this Elmore Leonard novel with a bunch of actors that were, you know, like this was their, like, their comeback movie for a lot of people. And it was just this really understated movie because it's not, it's not a fast movie. It has the pacing of the novel and you don't pace novels the same way you pace movies. So it's very slow and it's very quiet for most of the time. Um, but I loved it. I thought this was probably his, his best, most sophisticated work at the time. So I really, really enjoyed it. And a lot of it was this song and the character of Max Here's the song playing in Jackie's apartment. You know, he's he's come back to her to to retrieve his gun after he bailed her out of jail. And she's playing the song. He actually comments on it. He's like, what is this? And he, he likes it. And later on in the movie, we see him going shopping and he buys a Delphonic CD and he plays it in his car. And at the end, when he is basically taken at gunpoint by Sam Jackson's character to go find Jackie so Sam Jackson can try and kill them both. The song is playing in Max's car and Sam Jackson actually like stopped. He does a double take and he looks like, I didn't know you liked the Delphonics. And Max like, they're pretty good. But what I loved was just like, this feels like such a genuine and authentic expression of having a crush on someone. You take an interest in the things that they like and, and as a kid, you know, in high school, is like, yeah, I, I have a crush on some girl. She, oh, she really likes this band or this music. I'm going to go out and find that band or that music. I'm going to listen to their stuff and I'm just going to try and like, what does she like about it? Maybe this can be like this common interest. And it's funny to see this coming from two people in their, you know, late 40s or early 50s as the characters are, but it's still the same kind of flirtation based on this music and just the way it's used and the way it carries throughout the film. I love it, and I also just love the song. It's a very beautiful song. Uh, I think it. I think it was a Grammy-winning song when it came out in the late '60s. And I, I will say that this was also kind of instrumental in me revisiting and, and discovering a lot of classic Motown and R&B and soul songs from this era that have kind of become some of my favorite music of all time. What's one of my favorite genres is Motown soul. Uh, and, and a lot of it came from liking this song as much as I do. So, yeah, I, I, I totally credit this one for the, the direction that my musical taste took for a long time. So, what do you think about this one? Tell me you didn't hate it. I didn't even listen to it. Wait, no, wrong, wrong show. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, I've heard this song, God, in countless movies, but everybody only ever uses the first verse. Almost no other movie will show. Oh, you know, have it on screen that you know, anything past that first opening song verse about you know, falling in love and you know, oh, we've been together and all this. Nobody ever gets to the point of, hey, you know, I'm completely walking out the door and I ain't coming back. But let's talk about the new kids cover. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I will openly admit I had not seen Jackie Brown until you put this on the list. So 
kudos to you for making me watch a movie. Nice, nice. Happy that happy I did. Uh, the the song itself, pretty much everything you said, and you went far beyond anything I had on it. So, all right. Well, then let's let's move on to what's your next song selection. <laughs> oh man. So, if anybody hasn't looked at the show notes, this one might be a bit of a surprise. Watching Chasing Amy, I really had a little bit of trouble picking... No, that's a lie. I did not have trouble picking a song. This one stands out far and above any other song on this... Since there is no actual track official album for this show, movie, but you know it, it still stands out far and above anything else featured in the movie... I went with Alive by Joey Lauren Adams. So apparently, Joey Lauren Adams not only performs the song, she also wrote it for the movie. To set the scene, Alyssa, played by Adams, sings the song in a bar to her girlfriend, but Holden, played by Ben Affleck, really thinks it's for him. Yeah, that, that kind of went south for him real fast. The song is absolutely beautiful. I don't care what anybody says, it works so well, especially with Joey Lauren Adams' gravelly voice. It sums up the plot of the movie pretty well, and it definitely sums up where Holden is at that point in the movie. Plus, who else thought Joey Lauren Adams could sing? (laughs) I sure didn't, but damn, do I want an album for her after this. (laughs) I had a huge crush on her at this time. Um, <laughs> Didn't we all? Yeah, well, I'm sure. I, when did I first see her? It was in some TV show. Married with Children, probably. Yeah, or, yeah. It was that, or like the spinoff of that, or something like Top oh, of uh, Top of the Heat. Yeah, or Top of the Heat. Yeah, she was in that, and then uh, she had a smallish role in Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought she was just the the cutest chick. I loved her voice. Uh, it was so distinct. And I loved seeing her in Mallrats, um, seeing a lot of her in that in that one very brief scene. <laughs> um, so when I found out that she was the star of this movie and had like the big, I was so excited. And I saw this movie, and yeah, th- this moment when she's singing, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I had to go back and rewatch the scene on YouTube to to hear the song, and I had completely forgotten the way Ben Affleck reacts during this song. 
you know, when she's singing at first, dance moves. oh my God, he is at first kind of like getting into it, shaking his shoulders, kind of grooving. And at first the spotlight is on him because we like, he does not know. And the audience does not know that he, that she's a lesbian at this point. Well, I mean, the clues are there, but he is, he is certainly oblivious and he's kind of shaking his shoulders and kind of like getting into it. And as she's picking up, like he is like really sort of like gyrating and everything and like touching his chest and his tongue is out. And it's like, you are in a public place. Like what the, do you think you're having <laughs> sex with her from across the room? And he totally does not notice the woman walking up past him and standing kind of in front that she is, that Alyssa is clearly singing the song to her lover. And he is just so not, realizing that and how into it he is with his eyes and his mouth and his body and touching himself. I was just like, it makes you cringe. Just like, dude, have some awareness of what is going on in this moment. Like, like that is one of those things that you don't come back from. Like after, after you do that and you see her kids, like, I, I mean, I, that actually takes me back like a, a moment in college where I thought I was like connecting with this girl and I was at a, at a bar. And she, the, the girl was actually the waitress and we had been kind of flirting because we had classes together and we had actually spent some time on New Year's Eve, like not hooking up and watching TV. And I thought we had connected and I'm taking some my friends to this bar where she works and everything. I'm describing this girl. I was like, yeah, you know, I think, you know, maybe something's going to happen. And when she comes to take our drink order, she's like, Hey, guess what? I got back together with my old boyfriend. And I'm like, you did. And you had to say that in front of all of these people that I'm sitting here with. I was like, great. Thank you, Lisa. That's awesome. Ah, broke my heart. But, but that's so that my friend is a shared moment. (laughs) Priceless callback humor. That is, that is perfect, perfect line <laughs> drop. Yep. Thank you, Banky, for put, putting the cap on that moment. <laughs> oh, so uh, good, good choice. Yeah, I, I, I think we were all pretty much in that same situation in our good old college days, hanging out at bars and clubs and coffee houses. Well, maybe that last one was just me. But. <laughs> I never pegged you as a big coffee drinker, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, once or twice yeah. an hour. Moving on now, the next Tarantino film, this was Kill Bill Volume 1 from 2003. Again, so many songs to choose from, but I had to go with Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, Esmeralda Suite by Santa Esmeralda featuring Leroy Gomez.
The song Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood was originally performed by Nina Simone back in 1964 and then probably more famously covered by The Animals in 65. And then in 1977, it was covered by Santa Esmeralda, which was a French group. Uh, and they turned the song into a Spanish flamenco dance song with a heavy beaten percussion that helped it actually become a disco hit at the time. The movie has tons of great material on both soundtracks for Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2. Um, I'm sure I could probably come back to the soundtrack and I might come back to Volume 2 on another episode. Uh, And there's tons of great music for fights specifically for battle scenes, including uh, the famous Battle Without Honor or Humanity uh, by Tomoyasu Hote. And then uh, Nobody But Me by the Human Beings is also used in the scene when uh, the bride, Uma Thurman's character, is fighting the crazy 88 Uh, with her sword fights and chopping everybody up. But I singled out this one because I really love its place in the film. Um, The Bride, Uma Thurman, and Oreni Shii, played by Lucy Liu, they're finally facing off. This is the final boss battle of this movie, of Volume 1. And they face off in this snow-covered Asian garden. It is beautiful, like just aesthetically gorgeous. Everything looks pristine and white, including Oren, who is wearing white. Um, And the thing is, actually, I I had a teacher who actually talked me through this thing, which he said, if you're watching this movie and you're familiar with Asian culture and sentimentalities in in terms of like some filmic, you would have walked into the scene and known exactly how the fight was going to end because whereas white is traditionally seen as a virginal color or a, a, a color associated with weddings in Western culture, in the East, white is, has a lot more association with death and with funerals, sort of the way we think of the color black. So the fact that Oren is wearing white in this fight means she is the one who is going to die. Also because she's the villain, we got to watch the hero's journey. Um, but they're going off, they square off, and as they're holding their, saw, their, their swords to each other, they get ready, and it's a very slowly formal you know, Japanese, almost almost like a theatrical thing where Lucy Liu takes her shoes off and we see her feet because it's Quentin Tarantino. The song <laughs> has to start when the camera's at her feet. And it does. And it begins with this flamenco tap, 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 like rapping of the drums and like clapping beats and everything. And the way it just sets up and then the music, the Spanish guitar and then the electric guitar. And... You don't even get the, any of the lyrics in this. Uh, it, it just cuts out, but you get like the first like you know like minute or so, and then it transitions as they they get to the first part of their fight scene. And I just simply adore how this particular flamenco dance scene is juxtaposed against a Japanese samurai style sword fight. I just adore this. It's it's one of my favorite parts in any of his films, and I, it it makes me love this song so much. So, what you think? This is actually my favorite song of your picks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you first said it, you know, a little behind the scenes, I was completely confused, like, what movie this was even in, because I was picturing the animals version. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I, in my head, I'm like, this isn't in, in any of these Tarantino <laughs> movies that I remember, but okay. And you're like, no, it's the Oren Ishii fight. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, there's no <laughs> lyrics. That's why it's completely changed up. But, yeah. This is a great song. It's ten and a half minutes, though. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're out there dancing, I hope you got your energy with you. <laughs> it's 1977. I'm sure everybody dancing to the song was on coke. 
<laughs> okay, sure. It wasn't bad for you back then. That's what I learned from the movie Boogie Nights. <laughs> Drugs didn't become bad until 1980. Yeah, see, that's when I came around. So, but yeah, the 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 juxtaposition, like you said, between the the sword fight and this Latin beat, it's it's so good. It's peanut butter and chocolate. It, it's two things <laughs> that shouldn't taste good together, but they do. All right. So take us to our next one. All righty. So moving on down the line to a little thing called Clerks 2 that some people really didn't think should happen, but thank God it did. We have a little Samantha Fox tune called Naughty Girls Need Love 2. So in the movie, this is used during Dante's very quickly put-together bachelor party, a.k.a. the interspecies erotica scene. And this part where everybody has tuned out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so why I chose this scene, or why I chose the song, excuse me. The song's here for two main reasons. For some reason, and don't don't ask me why, but I find this to be the perfect choice as an absolutely hilarious joke for the type of show that Randall thinks he's booked for Dante's bachelor party, but not necessarily the one they all get. Because a little bit of spoilers here, Randall thinks he's booked a donkey show with a woman. Uh, no. The donkey and... The uh, handler are both male. But the second reason is probably the more important reason that this is on the list. Given the opportunity, I had to pick a Samantha Fox song because I think your good friend and mine, Zumi Okonori, would have loved that we put it on here. I have literally never heard of Samantha Fox until you mentioned that song. <laughs> had to make that joke. Have to continue that joke. Sorry. I, I, I was glad that you picked this one. Um, now, being completely serious, I do have to say that continuing the trend for every episode of Soundtrack Selections, I have not seen Clerks 2. Uh, I, as much as I loved Kevin Smith and his board, it was, was like after Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, I felt like 
I kind of tapped out of those characters. I felt like I was like, okay, I think I think we're done here. And I watched the the evening with Kevin Smith uh, movie where he, he's basically just giving a bunch of speeches and lectures at college campuses. And I thought that was brilliant. He, he was a great comedic storyteller. And then with Zach and Miri, but I think that was the last of his movies that I've seen. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I was surprised actually when I went on IMDb to see how many movies he has done in the last decade or so because I I haven't seen of them. Uh, and I and I think Clerks Two was the first one that I skipped. I, I mean, you weren't spoiling anything for me with your description. I know a little <laughs> bit about the the interspecies, uh, 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 whatever, like a interspecies love scene or or uh, a bachelor party. Um, so yeah, that, that was that was good, and I, I am glad that you picked this one. When Zoom first kind of teased us half joking we assumed it was jokingly that uh, that he would do a whole podcast about samantha fox we were all kind of like oh haha at that time this was the only samantha fox song i knew like this was the first one that i heard and i think this was the only song of hers that i'd ever heard like and I, this uh this one is from back in 1987 there was a single released in 1988 and i had heard it i remember seeing it uh maybe on mtv or just hearing it on the radio at the time when i was a kid I was not familiar with any of her other songs. I knew that she had been around, but I thought she was kind of like a one-hit wonder. Uh, so when Zoom was first talking about it, I was like, oh, okay, I don't know if there's that much material, but he clearly proved me wrong there. Um, but so, so yeah, when you picked this one, I was like, this is a nice touch. I mean, I, I don't have much to say about it because I can't talk to its, its place in the, in the movie that I haven't seen. Um, but I, I was happy to get some Samantha Fox and, and Zoom Yukonori representation on this episode. So a very nice, a very classy pick by you, sir. Well, classy <laughs> is debatable given the subject matter of the, of the movie, but I, I, I think Zoom would have thought that was pretty funny, too. Hey, I didn't put it in the movie. But... <laughs> All right, moving on to my final selection for this episode. We are looking at the 2007 movie Death Proof, uh, which was packaged along with uh, Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror in the Grindhouse uh, double feature films. And the song that I picked is the song that plays during the closing credits, the song Chick Habit by April March.
So this is originally a French song from 1964 called Les Etats de la uh, Apologies to Cisco and the girls if I butchered that. Uh, I don't think I did. Uh, but this, the song translates to Leave the Girls Alone. And it's about a girl basically warning her, her lover who broke her heart, like not to, not to do, not to carry on like that, not to break her heart the way he has done with other girls. Then there's an American singer-songwriter named April March who recorded two versions of the song in 1995, one with the original French lyrics called Les Etambelafils, and one translated into English called Chick Habit. The movie Death Proof actually uses both versions during the ending credits. They kind of uh, transition, and I actually I got the album because I liked it so much, and I, I did a little uh, splicing with uh, one of my software programs, kind of cut together a version that has both. Um, and I, I really like this version. It's a rocking, it kind of has like a surfer, almost bossa nova sound to it. Um, but it's just, it's fun. And you hear the, the, the threat in the English language version, the menace. And, and to, to talk about the movie, I mean, uh, Kurt Russell plays this guy, this stunt man who's basically gone crazy and dry uses his car as an engine of death to murder people on the road, either by crashing into people or, you know, t- picking up hitchhikers and driving them to their deaths. And, and this whole time throughout most of the movie, he's terrorizing this one girl who's trapped on the hood of his car and her two friends that are following them in this psychic psychotic chase. Uh, and it finally ends with them getting the better of him. And, it, and the movie ends with them literally beating him to death, kicking the shit out of him. And with this music, <laughs> music playing over it and it's just great like the the, the music and the, the meaning the heart it's just such a weird song that but it's a groove and i love it and i can listen to the song over and over i, I just like it so much yeah god yeah it, it's such a well it, it's a fun beat like you said the little surfer bossa nova late 50s early 60s kind of vibe but even though it's still kind of said playfully those lyrics do get kind of dark <laughs> yeah they do but it's it's kind of more like a nancy sinatra version of elvis presley's little sister don't you do what your big sister done <laughs> yeah. yeah uh interesting side note april march has done animation for ren and stimpy oh that's who okay i think i knew i think i looked that up a long time ago that yeah she was actually she's an animator too yeah which I'm not sure if that makes this selection better or worse. <laughs> it makes it something. <laughs> I really don't know where that bit of trivia falls in all this, but <laughs> it's not really related to the song. The song, I really like it, but the choice to call it Chick Habit is just kind of interesting, really. Basically, she's just saying, quit being a man slut. But I'm saying it nicely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like the the threat and the menace that she brings to it. Like there, there's a verse towards the end where you, she says, "Oh, how your bubble's gonna burst when you meet another nurse. She'll be driving in a hearse." It's like, phew, damn, damn. Yeah. this is this is getting, like I mean, you're this is getting dark, as you say. This is getting really dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think we should probably end on a much lighter tone than that. So, <laughs> why don't you bring about that lighter tone with the final song on this episode? Well, it's kind of interesting that you and I both picked uh, credit sequences for our last songs. So, in true movie soundtrack fashion, I'm going to bring it back to the first movie, Jan Silent Bob Strike Back, with Afro Man's hit, Because I Got High. I was going to clean my room, 
Until I got high. <laughs> I was gonna get up and find the broom, but then I got high. Uh, my room is still messed up, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, hey, cause I got high. Because I got high. Because I got high. La da 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 da. I was gonna go to class before I got high. Come on, y'all. Check it out. Uh, I could have cheated and I could have passed. But I got high. Uh, uh, I'm taking it next semester, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, cause I got high, because I got high, because I got high. Go to the next. Go to the next. Go to the next. Why did I pick this? Do you really have to ask? <laughs> Was this not the song that you heard everywhere in the summer and fall of 2001? Were you not singing it all over the place? Did you not just sing it now? <laughs> song has a smooth rhythm even white guys like me can follow along with so come on <laughs> it was it was definitely it was the popular hit because the song came out the same year the movie did so this was mm-hmm. this is everywhere and kevin smith must have picked up on that and put and dropped it in yeah i mean it's a hilarious song and it's the perfect psa for not basing your entire life around getting high ryan <laughs> of course of course yes yeah yeah and it, uh, again with, with the irony you you would think i mean listening if you just read the lyrics of course it sounds like it's an anti-drug psa uh <laughs> it, you don't get how much fun the, the singers are having and and as they're going through it and the the whole nature of yeah they no this behavior is not going to change this is their lifestyle mm-hmm. they love it um, they're they're choosing to <laughs> accept the the consequences of this action because that's what they do. Uh, apparently, the success of using the song in the movie got Afro Man signed to Universal Records. Hmm. Or maybe it was just slightly before. I'm not sure on the order of that, but yeah. Interesting note: Bob Rivers, the you know, Twelve Pains of Christmas guy, included a Christmas version called Be Claws I Got High on the 2002 album White Trash Christmas, which is apparently the fifth in his line of Christmas parody albums. So, there are five of these albums? Well, my brother and I need more content for a very daily Christmas, so I I guess I know what I'm listening to tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I got nothing. I, I got no other lyrics. This was just one of those words. <laughs> this song pretty well speaks for itself. If you've never heard it, and now you need to. It does. It's just one of the, it's, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is exactly what it is. This is a song that wears its heart on its sleeve. It's funny. It's in its own way, kind of sweet. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good capper for that movie. It's a good capper for this one. Um, I don't think there's any more meat to it than we've already discussed. It is what it is. Uh, yeah, and, and with that, uh, that is our tribute to the, the soundtracks of Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and naturally, we're just scratching the surface with these picks. I, I am quite certain that uh, future episodes will feature more songs from these filmmakers and their their log- large catalogs. I mean, the very first episode, I had a song from Django Unchained, uh, which is why I didn't even touch on that movie for this one. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, good stuff. Uh, as I said, you know, before we even started talking about the songs, just I probably never would have thought about these movies and these soundtracks 
if you hadn't challenged me with this particular like pitch, and it was so much fun to revisit these in my mind. I didn't have to go back and rewatch any of these movies because I had watched them so obsessively for a couple of years, you know. And even though that was twenty years ago, like they just they imprinted, uh, uh, which is a credit to both Kevin Smith and Tarantino, uh, that that they left that kind of impression. So as soon as I saw like the names on the list, I was laughing and I was thinking about these and just listening to these songs in my head again. I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Uh, and, and I knew what I would be saying with this episode. So, Clinton, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this episode of Soundtrack Selections. Where else can people find you in the podcastosphere? Oh, well, if anybody is still listening and still wants to hear from me, then thank you. Uh, you can hear me on Coffee and Comics, where I talk about a comic or related media in the span of time it takes to have a nice little coffee break. Or you can hear me over on the Longbox Crusade Network with Fan Film Fridays, where I and a guest look at an online fan film and pretty much either talk it up, down, sideways, or whatever. All right, very cool. Thank you again for your appearance on this episode. Papal Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by going to Apple Music or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever. Leave us a nice five-star review. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is included. Thank you for listening. Let's